Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Um, and if you're clicking on this episode from our mailing list, then thank you so much. We're making that a huge priority right now so that we have direct access to you all and make sure that you do not miss any of our episodes because we think we have some pretty valuable content. Once again, this episode is not intended as medical advice as an, and is intended for entertainment and knowledge um, on just different topics related to preventive medicine. So with that out of the way, let's get straight into this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Today with us, we have um, Astrid Naranjo, who is actually in Australia. So it's our first Aussie guest. We've had Canadians on. Um, we've had pretty much, I think, just most people in the U.S. So we're branching out here. And uh, so Astrid has a pretty unique story. She's actually from Venezuela and did her bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics there before moving all the way across the world to Australia, getting her master's degree in nutrition and dietetics there. And then now that she's there, she works as a clinical dietitian and does a lot on social media, um, promoting like daily informative content relating to nutrition, as well as being on podcasts and talks with industry giants in nutrition. So we are very humbled to have her on the show right here. Absolutely. And then um, also in addition, she specializes in sports nutrition, fat loss, PCOS, and in eating disorders. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here today and being able to chat with you guys. Yeah, we're excited. I think we're going to have a, a good conversation with a lot of good content for our listeners. So uh, kind of the first question, just going into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, I know Raghav did a great job introducing you, but just tell us a little bit where you're from, uh, how you got into dietetics and um, kind of what your role is in that field right now. Well, it is a little bit of a long story because I've been a dietitian for about nine and a half years now. Um, and basically, since I started, I would say, I will be very honest, when I when you start a career, especially when you're very young, you're not really thinking about uh, like a very selfless uh, pathway. You, you're kind of thinking, well, what is going to aligned with what I do, what I like. And at that time, I was really into fitness. I was doing, I was a personal trainer. I was teaching classes. And I said, I want to study something that can I can use to make me look better and I can manipulate my nutrition. And at the same time, I could help other people as well. So it wasn't like a very like amazing goal or like mission, like I'm just going to jump into dietetics to help everyone and, and get into a hospital and help people who have diabetes. I had no idea what dietitian, what a dietitian role actually meant until I actually started my dietetics. So it, it was a little bit uh, like awesome to see how much more is 
to be a dietitian, I thought, oh, well, I'm just going to make meal plans. And that's, that's the only thing you had in your head. It's like, oh, you, when you do dietetics, you're going to do meal plans and just write diets and things like that. But then you see the food science, biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, uh, so much stuff. And then you start looking at the clinical aspect of dietetics and how important it plays a role in into person's health in preventing any sort of chronic disease, in trying to um, alleviate or perhaps sometimes reverse or curate some some conditions. Um, So it it was really an eye-opening and mind-blowing to know what dietetics actually was um, doing uh, in, in all different aspects. So that's what I did. And then basically I moved to Australia once I graduated from my my bachelor's. And here I did a year, I lost like a year and a half learning English in the proper way academically. And then I started my, my master's degree at Bonn University where I did a master's on nutrition dietetic practice. And I did it not just because I wanted to do a master's and getting a little bit more higher up in the academy, academic world, but I was interested in delving into the nutrition and medical system in Australia because it was completely different. The, the way things operate, the, this, the health system here is different. So I think if I was going to be a dietitian, I needed to like really understand all the processes in a different country. So that was really, I think that was kind of going back and doing my bachelor's again, but there was quite a few different aspects that I wasn't aware of. Uh, I learned more about uh, the research aspect, how to to run proper research, how to do systematic review, lots of different things that I I wasn't very uh, good at. And then I really got into that point, uh, as well as looking at dietetics as a more patient-centered approach and motivational interviewing, working with the clients and the patients um, as a joint as a joint partnership rather than you telling them what to do, what to eat. So it was really interesting to kind of move away from you being just the one who tells them what to do to be a partner who pretty much give the, your clients guidance. And obviously you have the knowledge, but you want to work with a client to make things work. So yeah, that's a little bit of my story. Hopefully um, that give you some light into, oh, that's what, that's what she's doing. And at the moment, I am doing quite a few things, actually. So um, I'm currently working as a private dietitian in a hospital, in a rehab hospital that has a mental health component. So I do that part-time. Um, in addition to that, I am doing my online business on my own, and you see me on my social media is kind of where I show what I do. Uh, but that's my, my basic role in that sense. So I do that. I could say I do it the, the times I'm not in the hospital. So it doesn't have a specific time. I am going to bed. And I'm still working. So I don't think I have a I haven't set a boundary. And that's bad. But 
I think I'm working on it. And and I'm going to start soon working with Lang Norton in as a coach with them. So that's, that's gonna awesome. be something coming soon, but I'm gonna work as a team in the team violin, as a dietitian, a nutrition coach. And I guess that's that's sort of looking forward into what I'll be doing in the next it, like next week, I'm going to start getting into that now. And yeah, and I'm looking, I'm not doing one more thing, which is uh, once a week, I'm running like in-person private practice in a gym. So I started looking at new people, but now not necessarily in hospital or online, but more one-on-one. So I, I'm interested to see how, it, what it looks like and how it plays out. So yeah. So many hats at the moment. Yeah, that's Definitely. fantastic. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit just how you got into social media? How that, that seems to be, be a big part of what you've been doing. So how did that kind of start for you? Well, uh, to be honest, I don't know. I, I, I'm always been a social media um, nerd in the sense that I always, I started with Twitter years ago and that was kind of my main strength and I was able to really really nail it well and then Instagram came out I'm, I'm still old school I am not very uh, very good at other platforms but I kind of worked so so hard to understand Instagram and and how to really nail the graphic design and like I've learned so much in this process uh, over the next, the past few years and how to really target your audience and uh, make posts that are relevant and easy, plus trying to translate the evidence and the research into very sim- simple ways that makes you laugh, makes you remember it, makes you understand it. So I think that's one of the main things I like about the social media is that there's a lot of misinformation there. And I feel like I have the responsibility and the duty to come along and show that there's a that you can use social media in a healthy way, and you can use social media to teach people and and translate some of the and misspell some of these myths that you see all the time. That just makes me so mad that I think this sort of powers this um, this desire to keep going and keep helping people to just improve their relationship with food, knowing that certain things are okay to do, like you can eat, have your donut every now and then, like that sort of different things that allows you to be in a better place when it comes to food and your relationship with food. Definitely. And I will admit, I have been uh, looking at your social media and trying to take some tips away from it for both hours on the podcast and my personal one too, to try to make some like informative posts because you definitely do a fantastic job on those social media posts. And if uh, our listeners already are not following then please go ahead and do so. It'll be the first um, link in the show notes because she has fantastic graphics and also sounds like you're really busy. So I also want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the time. Um, to come on this podcast. And I would also be doing a disservice to our listeners right now if I didn't ask you, why did you move from Venezuela all the way to Australia? Because that is quite the move. Yeah, it is. It is a long story, but basically um, the place where I used to live, Venezuela, 
has gotten worse over the years, especially in the political aspect. And obviously that's affecting every other things within the country. Uh, that was one of the, the, the main things that my boyfriend at the time, currently my husband, he, he was like, I, I want to have a better life and I want us to move to a new place where this is my dream. This is a, the place where we're going to be able to live our lives much better professionally in all the ways. So it was, it was a little bit of a pros and cons because obviously you leave your family, you leave everything you've done. I had, I had to pretty much quit to everything I had built up, up until that point. So while I was studying my bachelor's, I was growing my business at the same time. Um, and I was quite well established as a sports dietitian back there. And I was running workshops and I had a lot of people uh, looking forward to for me to just talk sometimes and do my my nutrition educational sessions, and I was good. But I understand that potentially looking into the future was going to really get worse. So we decided to come and just risk everything. That let's do it, and we came here. And I won't lie, the first two years and a half were really really tough. Because especially as uh, someone who were who was already well established, and you quit to everything, and you come to a new place where you have to start from zero, you are no one, and that pretty much affected my ego, my motivation, my self esteem. It was really tough to get out of that dark place, to feel like you can do it again, and you can build yourself again, and now. Is no longer Spanish. You have to build everything again from scratch in a new language that I wasn't very confident with in the beginning. I was like, I'm not going to be able to do that because I have no, no way. There's no way that I'm going to be able to communicate everything I want and I was doing now in English because it's so different and my English is not very good. I have a strong accent. Now has gotten better, but it was really beginner at the at the at first, and it was frustrating. When I was going to talk, like my my tongue would travel. Like, it was it was just frustrating. So that was basically the reason. And then I studied I studied my master's degree. So let's sort of go with a goal of doing something, not just going to, for living, but being able to work there as a dietitian and to get there, I have to study a master's and being able to learn the English properly. So I studied English, I studied my master's and rebuild my life again. So it's been here about eight, seven and a half, eight years since I came. And yeah, that's my story. Yeah, that, that's an incredible story of just resolve and uh, making the best out of a situation and, and really overcoming a lot of obstacles. That's incredible. Um, you know, kind of getting into more of the, I guess now the, uh, the meat of the podcast. Um, well, how does a person's relationship with food affect their choices of what they eat? It can, it, it is, I think it is everything for me, like how your relationship with food is, now I can understand it because I suffered from an eating disorder. I was, I had a really terrible relationship with food. And the way you see food is different when you have already a preconceived idea of how it, it might affect you. Or like if you're already 
you, if you already conceive that the, if the food is too good or it, or it's bad, it is already giving you some thoughts and some some kind of predisposition before you even eat the food. So it affects your food selection. It affects the way you feel around your your when you sit down and eat. You are being affected by the certain thoughts when you, if you're eating something that you deem that is healthy and good versus something that might not be as healthy or good. So it is, it is definitely some uh, a concept that I really feel like is very powerful. That if it's not in the right place, it is going to affect you in very different ways. How you see food before, during, and after. It might not be necessarily what you're eating, but it could be even how you make decisions around food or plan meals or like even the way that like planning going out, going away or eating out or traveling, it just makes you be so food, uh, food focused, uh, food centered because everything needs to be planned around the things that you believe they're good for you and the things that are not good for you. So some people might get very anxious, very stressed about eating eating out because they are not allowed to eat certain things or because outside their control, it, there's not going to be all perfect or it's not going to be everything in their control. So that give you give them anxiety, especially if you know that in restaurants, you have no idea what are they, what are the ingredients they're using, how much oil they can put into foods, um, the calories, you don't really know them. So if you're someone who is very um, focused on eating certain things and others are deemed bad, it is like you're going with that anxiety that you don't know what are you going to eat, how are you going to eat it. Um, there, there can be obviously ideas around this is going to make me fat, this is going to be impossible to track. And because I cannot track it, I either go into all or nothing mindset or I eat it or I don't eat it. And if I eat it, I have to eat the whole thing because it is prohibited to have these kind of things in my life. So you see the, the turning to these extremes when you cannot control something or give, give an, a little bit of an approximate of what, how would it look like. Or you just find a middle ground. These kind of thoughts can be very damaging for all the different things from, for your, from the point of mental health as well as just basically living your life with, in a food freedom environment where you just go and eat and enjoy and taste the food. And if there's something that is something out of, of your control, you can still have the, the sense of control on yourself and how you respond to things. And um, you try to work around it rather than freaking out. So I don't know if that responds to your question, but... Uh, um, I'm trying to give you a pers my perspective of how I suffered a lot from not being able to control certain things. For me, going out or even planning travels was so, so stressful because I, I, I wasn't able to feel like I could just go and have something that probably wasn't in my in my agenda or within my good list and bad list. And it was something very stressful. So I, I would say that a lot of people might feel uh, very quite related when they think about these particular things. 
Oh, definitely. And food, I think we had this quote on another episode. I forgot exactly which one it is. I think it might've been Dr. Hoffman, but she mentioned like, um, food is one of those exposures that you can't go without. You're going to be exposed to food every single day, multiple times a day, whether that's like a breakfast, lunch, dinner type schedule, whatever the schedule is, food is always around you. So having, um, a poor relationship with food really impacts every single day for like your life, as long as you have that poor relationship, because you're just surrounded with it. You have no option. You can't just avoid food. You need to eat to survive. So, um, I think it's really important. A lot of the topics you talked about just now, where like it is around you, your relationship with food definitely makes an impact on the things you're going to eat, whether you eat like all or none, you have so much anxiety surrounding food, whether can I control this? Can I not control it? And it takes a lot out of life enjoyment, like you were saying as well, which is at the end of the day, kind of, we're all just trying to be happy. And if you don't have the best relationship with food, you're probably not um, going to be as happy as possible. Yeah, and I think like uh, one of the things that we've done is I think a, a disservice, and I don't think anyone's necessarily responsible, but there's kind of become this, this natural um, creation of a binary vocabulary when we talk about foods, where there's, like you said, there's good foods and there's bad foods. And I think that truly does put people in a bad situation where, um, it creates a kind of a guilt shame spiral with food. If you're eating something that falls off of that, you know, good food list and you end up feeling bad, you feel guilty. And like you said, it leads to these spirals of people just going way out, out of bounds and eating, you know, um, just kind of entering a world where they stop caring about it. And the other end, like people who are like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm eating so good. I'm, you know, it creates this weird like sense of reward with eating, you know, chicken breast and rice instead of, you know, a sandwich from Subway or something. So it's very, very strange, but I think it's done a disservice that we've gone so binary with our language about nutrition. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. And I also want to add on to that, uh, I guess as a follow-up question, we're talking about a relationship with food and you also mentioned eating disorders. Um, And I wanted to ask you, is there a difference between like the relationships and eating disorders? What are the eating disorders? And can you kind of define those before we go on? Yeah, sure. So when we think about eating disorders, it's not the same as talking about disorder eating. So eating disorder is actually a concept that it defines a group of Uh, conditions that are already diagnosed and meet certain criteria that that meet for an actual disease or condition and it's mental mental related as well. So basically we'd see that there's a huge range. Like you can see that what we can sort of know more about is uh, a very small number of eating disorder conditions, but there's much more than that. So we generally hear from bulimia, anorexia, binge eating, and we might add to it perhaps a combination of these things. So bulimic, anorexic, or just bulimic uh, by itself. There's a lot of different subcategories as well. Um, You can see other things as well, like orthorexia, 
OCD combined with orthorexia. And we combine, when start thinking about the different mental health conditions and how can they be interconnected and associated with how people treat food and what's the relationship with food, that could be something that can have a, a larger definition and much more in depth. So to keep it very simple, I think we want to address the ones that are the most common. I personally am not I a I'm not a specialized in eating in all like clinical eating disorders. I don't treat them. I have the capacity to work with clients that have mild conditions, but generally severe eating disorders need uh, a very powerful therapy. And it needs the conjunction of other allied health and professionals that can work together. So generally, you need a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a counselor, a lot of a good team, support team to work with that client. Just dietitians by themselves can't just make this happen on their own its own. So I guess look, being a dietitian treating eating disorders has a a large component of a, a career and it has a big component of a specialization. So I, I personally treat and work with clients who has mild anorexia or mild bulimia where their stage of change is potentially there where they, the mental health is okay and it's more like they're they are a result of restriction, of chronic restriction or chronic dieting, um, not necessarily affected by a mental health condition. So I could probably work with clients that has anorexia or bulimia or binge eating or night eating disorder that they wake up at night to eat. And this is something that you can fix, but it has to be considered as mild within the category of, it, it, is an, it can be an eating disorder, but it's treatable in a, in a particular range of skills that not, doesn't need additional components of other uh, inputs of other professionals. Like you probably don't need a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a counselor. You can still fix it by fixing their nutrition and the relationship with food. And that can be just a step forward to get out of that dark place. Hopefully that makes sense. Absolutely. And so in, in saying all that, do, do you think these things are preventable in some cases? If, it, if it's related to a poor relationship with food, a chronic dieting, that, that mindset and that relationship you have with your body, it could be preventable or even fixable. If you have the skills, obviously, and you have uh, you utilize uh, an intervention that is appropriate to work with a client, and obviously you need to utilize certain techniques and certain uh, strategies to help them get away from that that dark place where they are at that point. Generally, one of those is obviously teaching them and working with them along the ways of getting them out of the dieting cycle, the dieting mindset or that restriction that seems to be governing their lives all the time and that they need to be in a smaller body. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who, who wants to lose weight, but it's something that 
it just came from trauma from the past. So people get into into a very dark place just because their childhood wasn't the best uh, the best in the world. They they struggle a lot and they use the body weight and food as a coping mechanism, as a shield to to feel protected. And it's something unconscious. It's not something that you directly see that they will do it because they want to. It's something ingrained in behind their the, their conscious thoughts. And that just leads to utilize food when they are not in control, just because this is the way they will keep the body they have to protect them. So it is very deep. It is something that you, you can speak for hours about and you wouldn't probably understand the depth of this until you actually understand the person's background, the person's past, uh, all the different things that could have affected the, the person's behaviors. And that just not sometimes in the most cases is related to, it's, unco- it's not unconsciously, it's not done on purpose. So I think it's trying to bring that awareness when you're treating these, these conditions to sort of dig in very, very much and understand what happened. Why Why do you think this is, this is happening in the first place? Why do you think you feel uh, safe around food or safe perhaps around that body weight? It, it is just a lot of things that you need to consider uh, that not, doesn't necessarily mean uh, or mean that it's only food. It's just food is only one component. Habits and your relationship with foods are another other components, as well as your past and behaviors and habits and how you're how are you feeling mental your is your mental health. Sometimes all of these things are associated with low self-esteem or poor mood or depression or anxiety. So I always feel like uh, eating disorders by itself needs to always have some level of share input. So only dietitians can do, a, could do a big chunk, but always mine needs perhaps a little bit more of someone who is specialized in responding to uh, certain behaviors or certain things that a psychologist perhaps can help or a counselor. So utilizing specific techniques that can help you to bring the past to the present, understand what is happening and help you to bring strategies to how to respond to certain situations in a better in a better place, uh, binge eating, how to get away from the desire or the urge of binging in a point in time where you lose the control, what you do. So these kind of things are strategies that will be will be brought by a combination of specialists and professionals. So dietitians always like to work with um, someone who has that mind component and you can just focus on the food con- component of it. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like, you know, it's one of those situations where I think most people don't under, understand or realize how nuanced or how multifactorial these, these issues go and issues are and how it takes a team of, of multiply trained professionals to help deal with those, those severe uh, eating disorders. But um, kind of another nuanced question, but, um, you know, we love to ask this of most of our guests or all of our guests is what does preventive medicine mean to you? And I think as someone who works um, in a unique part of medicine, you may provide some unique perspective to our listeners of what does preventive medicine mean to someone who works in dietetics? So I would talk about 
more specifically about um, preventive nutrition because it is it is still related, but preventive nutrition is more specific to what I do. So what you want to do with prevent is it's just about reducing the risks of getting uh, or acquiring diseases that are preventable. Obviously, there are conditions and, and diseases that you can't just control. Like if you get sick because you, you got a virus or something, it is something that you cannot prevent. Uh, you can do certain things like wash your hand, keep it clean and stay away from certain things, keep your immune health as strong as you can, possibly can. But beyond that, you, you are completely out of control of uh, acquiring certain diseases. But there, are, there is a range of preventable chronic diseases that all that are, they are all related to lifestyle habits, um, body weight, your eating behaviors and how you how you treat food on a daily basis so i think that's where where i think preventive preventative medicine and preventative nutrition comes into place into working on all these components to prevent a, a disease a chronic disease a preventable disease from happening in the first place so we know that uh, heart disease, diabetes, chronic uh, renal failure, uh, chronic disease, uh, kidney disease in general, strokes, um, all of these have a, a preventable component. Same as potentially Parkinson's disease, you could prevent these kind of diseases if you treat a lifestyle. But the thing with preventative nutrition medicine is that it is not short-term thing. It's a long-term game that it, it, it requires a lot of education, uh, consistent, consistent uh, practice, and you have to be consistent implementing all of these strategies in order to see a long-term result, which is preventing uh, these conditions in the first place. But the thing is that these, these chronic diseases are... As they say, they say, it's chronic. So you don't really see signs or symptoms in the first few years of your life. You see them very, very playing, playing well a lot in, the, in the long game. So uh, hypertension, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, heart disease, or like having a, 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 a CDA in your head. All of these things might happen but not today, not tomorrow. They are unpredictable, but they, they kind of build up according to your lifestyle. Obviously, there is a genetic component. There are certain things that you might not be able to control, but there's uh, a, big, a big chunk that you can control, and that's where preventive medicine and nutrition come, come into place. Definitely. And I think the difficult thing about uh, nutrition, at least when it comes to preventing, is that everyone thinks they know how to eat food. Everyone, the second they're born till any time in your life, you have been eating food. So you're like, okay, I know how to eat food. And you don't really think about that long term, like the chronic type thing that you're saying. You're not thinking about those consistent strategies for when you're 70 or when you're 80 and those things actually do start coming and making a large impact in your life. So one of the other difficult things here when it comes to prevention is people's behaviors, mindsets, all these things 
that you already discussed. So when it comes to kind of creating a preventive diet, quote unquote, obviously no one diet is going to fit anyone. We're not saying like, eat this diet, you'll be set for life. We're not saying that here. But when it comes to building a diet like that, um, kind of how do you build that healthful diet that works for prevention for the long term? I think it is a combination of things. Uh, one of those is obviously you want to build... I think there are three pillars. The first pillar is mindset, habits and behaviors. The other pillar is obviously what you actually eat or not eat and how you eat it, how frequent you eat it, uh, the quality and the quantity. And the other pillar is movement, exercise, and actual lifestyle, physical activity. So I think these three things are married. You can't just not separate it because you can have a, a beautiful, perfect diet, but if you are sedentary, and you have a poor mindset, you are depressed all the time, this is not going to, there's no way that you're gonna have an adequate adequate treatment or adequate prevention strategy to, to, to get there, get old and still be healthy. So especially with mindset, you also have stress management and sleep. And these two things are, such a, an important part of well-being in general, mental health, and they all affect each other. It's like these three things are married because they interact, they can seem different, but they all interplay and affecting each other. Your physical activity can uh, can either affect the way you feel and how you how much you move in a day, how much you eat. If you're people who are sedentary are more likely to eat more and be hungrier just because they, they, there's a connection between the hormones in your, in, your, in your stomach and the brain and how sedentarism can actually increase cravings, increase hunger. Whereas exercise by itself can increase hunger but because you're burning more calories, but you're also um, being able to, be, you're able to control more your appetite. It has something to do with hormone regulation and exercise and physical activity. So it is intera it's interacting each other all the time. Same with diabetes, uh, same with especially when we look at your mindset, depression, or like uh, adequate sleep or stress management. This can increase your your coping mechanisms or of eating food to get to feel more in control or when you're stressed eats or you emotionally eat. So mindset can play a huge role in how, what are the behaviors and the things you choose to do with food. So I guess that's my, my main focus. It is very broad, but I think that if I didn't speak about these three pillars, I wouldn't be on the right place to begin with. Um, now, if you focus only on a diet, as I said before, it has a lot of different things that you need to pay attention to. It's about quality. It's about quantity. It's about the frequency you eat certain foods, the approach you have uh, when it comes to uh, making foods, preparing, planning. All of these things have to do with um, better nutrition. So even going in a, in a little bit more in depth into this, we're looking at, are you having an adequate amount of calories to the, for the day that are sufficient enough to maintain your current weight? Or do you need to manage that to prevent uh, gaining weight, uh, especially 
unintentionally gain weight gain when we just overeating for the sake of whatever reason and we just gaining fat overall and that if you see on the long term excessive adipose tissue or body fat can lead to type 2 diabetes insulin resistance or other issues that are associated with this same matter now if we look at for example the quality are we having enough uh, nutrient-dense foods in our diet? So this is something that is particularly important for looking at micronutrients, micronut- uh, micronutrients like minerals, uh, polyphenols. Uh, do we have enough vitamins in our diet to begin with? Is that coming from vegetables, from fruit, for, from whole grains, from protein sources? Are we having an adequate balance of all these food groups? So all of these things, even they they seem repetitive because we hear this every single day. You have to eat vegetables, you have to eat fruit, you have to eat, eat whole grains and lean proteins. It really it is simple, and it's, it has to be repetitive because we we haven't nailed the the baseline, the foundation, and that's why we keep repeating it because it is so simple, but it's so hard to actually implement it. Yeah, how much several vegetables are you eating a day? And there's a lot of people that don't even eat or like vegetables to begin with. Or you you talk about having protein, but people are under eating protein. Like you see the population, there's more protein dilution, uh, the more that we see over the years, people are eating more carbohydrates, more um, conventional foods that, you see to be in a takeaways and you see that there's less consumption of protein. So we come back again to say, well, you got to eat more protein, but we don't implement it. So it's like this, uh, this association from what you recommend and what is, what are the dietary guidelines, for example, and what is the, what is being implemented. So hopefully that makes some sense in, into looking at the three categories I just explained to looking at more specifics in terms of your diet. It has to be balanced, obviously. There's no good or bad foods. It's just finding the right balance to include everything. All foods fits into within a healthy and balanced diet. Yeah, I think that's, that, those things are all super, super important. And so I think one of the areas that people struggle is, especially just you're talking about like, you know, your everyday people trying to get healthier is finding the right sources of information. So. Um, in your estimation, what what where should people go? What sources should people use when they're starting to build a healthier diet? I would go basically. It is hard to know when you're starting who who is a trustworthy source of information. Um, so I know that it can be very daunting to just go out there and well, who do I believe? Who do I trust? Because that that I'm I'm talking from the perspective of someone who has no idea what a dietitian even is or where to find the right information. And unfortunately, the first the first people you try to trust on is your general practitioner, your doctor. That's your closest source of information. Now, 
when I talk, when I think about what is the first thing that you should be aiming for is, is trying to build your baseline following at least the, the generally the general dietary guidelines. I think they are not perfect, but at least they give, give you a big, ch big chunk of information that seems to be trustworthy and seems to be backed up by quite a lot of science. When you do that, when people sit down to do and write down these dietary guidelines, there's a lot of research behind it to actually support these guidelines to begin with. So if you don't know anything or where to start, I think the dietary guidelines are a good place to start with. And then obviously trying to ask for for people that might be in the industry that might have a good reputation. So that probably will come from word of mouth um, and generally trying to if learn to, to how to interpret sometimes or read articles that are evidence-based. So it's perhaps he's trying to find, well, are, is there any research review or any, any kind of magazine that might be able to, be trustworthy and at the same time provide this information. Uh, I think that's what I would say and try to see if there's like any dietitian based um, website that you can perhaps look into without necessarily believing everything it is, is said or, or being written there because some dietitians can be biased, biased as well into their own beliefs. Like there's bias everywhere and every single person will try to pull into their beliefs. So trying to find neutral accounts or, or people who are actually trying to bring across information that is evidence-based and is neutral rather than extremist bias. Like if you see in a, like you go to social media and you see it straight away in the name, uh, keto expert or keto guru, or forget about it. It's, it's just going to be completely biased to one side. Or we see others that are completely plant-based or vegan. They are going to be biased as well because they are going to say eating eggs is not healthy. Uh, but the keto, keto experts are going to say, you have to eat every all the eggs you can in one day, and that's going to be fine. So we see all these those two extremes or the carnivore, uh, experts or the carnivore steelers, we're going to see extremes as well in there. So it's trying to find someone who can say all of these things are tools and trying to generally utilize words that are not extreme or like attention calling. Uh, so we see that this, this, these people that are going to try to utilize a very meaningful and uh, I would say unbiased approach are going to utilize words that are probably not very, uh, very beautiful or like a very attractive. They just a bit more boring. That is the way it is. We the the neutral approach is like a little bit more boring, and that's why it is not as popular, I guess. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. It definitely doesn't scream in your face or attract as many views as someone with an extreme viewpoint, which is one of the things I think we're all trying to fight right now. Is like, how do we make this evidence-based message more attractive to like your everyday person, right? Like it's been it's been difficult. 
And I also think to add on to that, the uh, the guidelines are an absolutely excellent place to start. And I know like a lot of times when you are scrolling in social media, you see people posting about, man, these guidelines are so outdated. Who is writing these things? The people who are writing these things are usually very well researched in what's going on. And they're creating very broad outlines of diets. And for most people, these guidelines are like essentially all you kind of need information wise, unless you're like becoming an athlete and some sort of thing, you need very specialized nutrition. For the most people, guidelines will work very well. And one of the other things that we've said on this podcast, essentially, if someone says they have the answer, like they use definitive terminology, like you're saying, like the best diet, keto, this keto, that vegan, this vegan, that usually that's probably not the way to go. Um, you want to find someone that's evidence-based, like you're saying, that is willing to like switch sides based on what the evidence says, because the evidence isn't always going to be like resolute and this is the best thing. As evidence comes out, it changes. And that's kind of the way you should be following. And one of those people you should be following is anti-diet dietitian on Instagram. And by her name, you can tell anti-diet kind of just means like she's against calling herself any single, like she's against like saying, I'm the keto person. I'm the vegan person. I'm the carnivore person. She's saying anti-diet. Let's find out what actually works, what's evidence-based and push that out there. I agree. It's been awesome having you on, Asher. We have one last question for you that we'd like to ask our guests. If you had two minutes in a coffee shop, if, uh, Rangith came up to you in the coffee shop and said, Hey, Astrid, I just saw you on Instagram. How do I get healthy? What's your two minute short answer for, uh, how do you get healthy? Okay. Um, (laughs) so what I would say is you really need to find the right balance between these three pillars I just mentioned, because health is a very broad concept, but if you want to really look at being healthy, you really want to pay attention to your mind and your well-being, your mental health. You also want to pay attention to your diet, um, how you eat, when you eat, how frequent you eat, the quality you have, uh, the type of foods and the frequency you have these foods. And also you want to pay attention to your lifestyle in terms of physical activity, um, because all of these three things are going to really make marry up to ensure you have a healthy life in general. You can eat all the healthy food, but if your mental health is not in the right place, you're not going to be healthy. If you are in a right place in the mental health, but your sleep is poor, that is going to affect your diet somehow. And that's going to affect your physical activity as well. So these all three things play a very, very big role into what you can say, living a healthy life. So that would be my main focus. And if I had to talk about specifically about um, like specific categories, I want you to try to prioritize your sleep, manage stress and try to uh, ensure you have adequate ways to respond to stress that are not food related. The other point would be with food, I I want you to have a high fiber, high protein diet that allows you to have adequate amount of micronutrients as well. Vegetables and fruit are always part of that healthy diet, whole grain uh, based diets is something that you want to have, but also allow some nice, loving soul foods that you like, that you enjoy. Just make sure it is not your main component of your diet. So it can be that 80-20 rule works well for looking at allowing yourself to have 80% of your diet to be whole grains, whole food, very 
uh, very nutritious, nutrient dense, and the other other twenty percent, do whatever you want with that. Eat, enjoy, and have fun with the foods you makes you feel happy, and that creates a really good balance. And finally. I would really pay attention to your physical activity. Try to find um, find exercises or a routine that makes you feel happy, makes you feel good. Um, if you want to resistance train, that would be amazing, but not everyone likes doing resistance training. So I wouldn't say do it, but it is highly recommended. But under that, just do things that makes you feel good uh, it can be can be even body weight, can be at home, can be walking, can be dancing, can be just doing more things and staying healthy and active. That's what would my two minutes worth of um, suggestions and recommendations be for living a healthy life. Thank you so much. I think you covered pretty much everything that you would want to suggest you covered everything from not only nutrition to like exercise, but also your mental health and sleep, which are very underrated, but very important aspects. So thank you for being so like encompassing of that. And there's so much to unpack from this episode. We hope to have you on for a second episode at some point, hopefully not too far in the distant future. Um, hopefully you enjoy this podcast. Well, and we really thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me, guys. And um, yeah, let me know when you're ready and we do another one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Astrid. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.